everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zaub, and today I sit down with Lior Avidar, founder and CEO of Alt. Alt has built a marketplace for sports cards that authenticates its transactions and provides buyers with the peace of mind that the slice of cardboard they just dropped a hundred grand on is no fake. If you've paid attention to this space over the last few years, you'll have witnessed an amazing surge in interest, marketplaces, on-ramps, and valuations for this asset class. So yes, that collection of Derek Jeter or Spud Web cards you might have in your basement actually could have a ton of value. Lior himself is a card collector and trading fanatic, having been deep in this asset class for years. It's worth noting that Lior is also the CEO of Lob, a direct mail marketing and address verification API company that's been very successful. Lior has a huge vision for the alt space, which we get into in today's episode. We also cover his journey from Wall Street to tech to entrepreneurship and the sports cards he first got that set him on this journey, how alt works, how they verify cards, and the three key pillars of fraud they watch the absolutely insane IRR Lior has had over the last few years, the future of alt assets as true stores of value and mediums of exchange, the $31 million round he raised from folks like Alexis Ohanian of Reddit, Larry Fitzgerald, the founders of Coinbase and BlackRock, Darren Ravel and Kevin Durant, and much, much more. Let's get started. Hi, Lior, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's great to have you on in the middle of this alternative assets boom and with a company as interesting as Alt coming on the Wharton Show today. Excited to be here. Great. So I think to start, Lior, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Not exactly the most traditional background for a card platform founder, although I don't know if there is a traditional background for that at all. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your story, who you are, and what really your initial interest was in this space? Yeah, so I started my career on Wall Street. Uh, A lot of people actually don't know that about 10 years ago. I started trading mortgage-backed securities and exotic derivatives. So I've always been interested in a liquid assets, basically. And took a little bit of a turn um, around 2011. I left Wall Street uh, in search of just something a little bit more fast-paced and ended up at Amazon Web Services in Seattle. And that was right before AWS took off. And since then, I've actually been working on uh, my company, Lob. I've been the CEO there for eight years. The company is going, hopefully going public in the next two to three years. But probably around 2016, I started kind of getting that like itch, uh, at least in like my free time, to start investing again. And, and I've always been known to invest in really strange things. Like I'm always out there looking for a market that I have more information than anybody else, because that's where you get a lot of the arbitrage from. And so back in 2016, uh, my parents actually moved from Chicago to Colorado, and my dad sent me all my basketball cards back. And when I was a kid, I didn't really like. I wasn't a heavy collector by any means. Like I had a couple, I really enjoyed sports. When I was, I don't know, eight to 14, I would trade them with my friends. But when I got them, I kind of got that rush to go and buy another basketball card. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I went on eBay, I actually bought like a box. You know, as a kid, I was was only allowed to get a pack, but now, you know, I went and bought, uh, I remember like a $300 box. And I was just in search of this one Kobe Bryant card And I got the Kobe card. And so that's kind of really the start. I started looking at the odds on the back of the packs. And I started seeing the expected value differences. Like a lot of the times you hear about these these people at MIT who are, you know, figure out like the expected value mismatch of lottery tickets. And I was like, oh my God, I've I found one. 
right? Of course. And honestly, that was like my foray into cards. It, it took a massive turn, and I can go through that, but that's just, I guess, the start to it. Right. So you ran this company, or you are running this company, Lob. And for our listeners, it helps companies do direct mail marketing strategy. So I have to ask, what gave you kind of the courage to start all while running a company that you said, you know, is just a few years out from IPO, clearly a very mature and, and large business? Yeah. So a lot of people think it just, I started it in 2021. It was actually a buildup over the last five years. So kind of continuing that story in, in 2016, I started doing those small arbitrages, you know, $10 turned into $100, turned into $1,000, turned into $10,000. You know, my friends were like, hey, can we get into this? So I started taking outside money over the last couple of years. Oh, wow. And lo and behold, you know, in 2020, I was managing a book of business and I mean, tens of millions of dollars in sports cards. Wow. And I'm still running a company. And so like my hobby started kind of bleeding in to my actual business. And so I had to really try to figure out like, hey, how do I manage both of these, right? And so I actually started the company because all my friends at that point had become partners at other VC firms. They had never had the opportunity to invest in law. And so they wanted to be along the journey with me. But it also gave me the opportunity to go hire an entire management team to take a broader vision outside of just sports cards. And so right now, Alt is a platform to invest in sports cards just like stocks. But what we're really trying to do is that for us, we really believe that the future is not in traditional assets. No longer are people investing in stocks, bonds, and real estate. But I believe that there is this new type of asset class, and it's the grouping of trading cards, sneakers, watches, art, even NFTs now, right? And so there needs to be the financial infrastructure to be actually to trade those things into fiat, right? If you're somebody who has a massive collection of sneakers, or sports cards. How do you go buy a home? How do you create that down payment? Because no bank is going to lend to you. And so we're starting with something that I'm, I would say, one of the world's experts in, and then slowly evolving the offering from there. That's awesome. And, and such an interesting story. And I think any of our listeners who are listening to a fintech podcast will have seen the surge over the last six months in these different alternative asset classes and platforms and on-ramps to enable all of them. And we, of course, had the Rally Road founder on just a couple of weeks ago. We'll be sure to link that episode in the description. So on that point that you said, you know, people are not necessarily going into stocks and bonds anymore. I think maybe my parents will be shuddering <laughs> when they hear that statement. <laughs> How do you think about your, you know, competitive landscape, you know, with all, are you worried about, you know, the fidelities and vanguards and Robin Hoods of the world? Or are you more worried about, you know, different alternative asset holders? When I think about competitors, it's interesting. I, I don't see so much as competitive. There's so much white space right now that I think everybody who is kind of deploying cash into alternative assets, those really are our competitors. So it's not Fidelity. You can't go buy sneakers on Fidelity right now, right? Right. And then when people bring up like StockX and eBay, you don't think of those as like investment platforms. And so I would say anybody who, any platform that allows you to invest in something that is not stocks and bonds and real estate is technically part of the competitive landscape in alternative assets, right? You might include companies like Republic and AngelList, you know, Rally, Otis, Collectible, Dibs. We're all part of this kind of like new age investment thesis, and we're all competing for the same wallet share, I would say. We're all tackling it in different ways, but I would say like we're all part of that single grouping right now. Yeah, absolutely. So many great companies coming out. But, you know, the, the Wharton student in me, I suppose, you know, my financial professors will say, 
these are relatively still illiquid asset classes, you know, immature pricing, et cetera. I was going to ask this later on, but I'd like to jump into it now. Do you think that this is, you know, a good idea for a lot of people to be jumping into these assets? You know, you clearly have a lot of experience in alternative assets. You know, you've been trading these cards forever, have convinced other people, you know, to support you in this journey. But do you think the everyday person should be investing in these kind of passion economy items as opposed to, you know, the more traditional 60-40 portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do with risk. Everyone is gonna. Everyone is in a different stage of life. Everyone has a different risk appetite, right? So if you're young or you have a high risk appetite, I think this is actually a really great market to enter in because obviously with risk, there's higher yield, right? If the stock market long-term is getting 7% yield, these assets, I mean, my IRR over the last five years has been 152%, Jesus. right? And so for those out there, I'm more than doubling my money each year. I don't know if I wanted to hear that number. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you go to these early markets, that's where you can make the most money. Right. And so I think the first is everyone's risk tolerance. I have a very high risk tolerance. I'm still in the wealth building mode, not wealth preservation mode. So I'm going to go and try to find these all over the place. I love things like crypto, right? And so I think everyone has to really ask themselves those those two questions to start it off. But being so early on, there is a lot of opportunity. And the big opportunity right now is around data and information. In any market, if you have the most data or information, you are going to have better returns. And so one of the things that I've been doing on Alt is trying to take all the knowledge that I've had and productizing it. And so when you think about illiquid assets, how much is something worth? right? How do you price something that maybe hasn't traded in 10, 15 years? And so some assets are really hard, but sports cards particularly has this unique feature. They're semi-fungible, meaning when you look at a specific sports card, they run in different parallels. So they come in different color variations, and you can use those variations to imply a multiple for maybe one that hasn't traded. And so it's very much, I guess, like just comps, right? And so what we've done, at least to educate any retail investor out there, and even institutional investors, is we created something called the alt value. And so we have all the data, and not everybody has you know, the skill set to go and model it all out and to come up with a price. And so what we've done is we've done the hard work for people. We've created something almost like the Zestimate or the Kelly Blue Book. We put an alt value on everything that is on alt. And so therefore, we actually are anchoring you to what we think the actual price is. And so with that, you can actually make a lot more informed decision both when you're buying and when you're selling. And so this is something when you go on eBay right now, you have absolutely no idea. You see a LeBron James card. How much should you pay for that, right? Where do you find the historical transactions. What is a comp for that LeBron James card? Uh, and so instead of having people doing all that difficult math, we just say, hey, the alt value is this. And then you can basically figure out how aggressive you want to be based on that value. So again, we're trying to simplify the liquid aspect of it by providing the alt value. And honestly, over time, if we're successful, more transparency into the market will create more liquidity. More liquidity should actually eliminate the alt value over time. Like you don't need an alt value for Apple, right? It's just whatever it last traded for. <laughs> right. Very true. And it's a really interesting concept. And, you know, I've naturally, especially just for guest research, have been dabbling in a lot of these platforms. And like you said, one of the biggest pain points for me, especially on Top Shot, how do I know if this Jokic, you know, card dunk <laughs> from the third quarter is going to have any value or if it's hot? And other people are saying, no, no, it's fantastic. And it's hard for a person who has not been deep in that space for a long time to triangulate that. So on alt value, could you just unpack a little bit how it works or how you at least went about designing, you know, this product that's certainly kind of one of a kind in the space? 
Yeah, I mean, there's parts of it that are actually very simple. So for very liquid cards, right, that are trading every single day on a lot of different platforms, what we're doing is we're taking all that data and cleaning it up and being able to just figure out what the last price is. And so we're just triangulating evaluation. Uh, and so the biggest part about the alt value is more about just the cleaning the data and bringing it together. For the really rare cards, that's going to be the really hard one. You have to basically figure out the comps and create different valuation models associated with it, and then basically create a historical trend line to see which model is the market actually valuing. And sometimes that changes, right? Sometimes it's an intrinsic value, sometimes it's player comps, sometimes it's brand comps. Uh, and so we're running and doing all that math behind the scenes. So as an example, we bought, Alt also owns a fund. We have the world's largest fund for sports cards. In June of 2020, we bought a LeBron James card for $1.8 million. It's the rarest LeBron James card. It's BGS 9.5, and there's 23 in the world. How do we figure out the price for that card, given that one has never traded before publicly, right? And so what we did was, one, there's a parallel. There's the same LeBron James card in the exact same grade out of 99, right? And so one aspect, one model that we came up with is said, okay, let's look at the historical comp for that card. I think it was a year beforehand. And then let's create an index of LeBron James to understand how the LeBron James market has evolved since the last comp. And then basically you could take that last comp and move the price forward. So that's just purely taking a historical comp, moving it forward, and then applying a multiple from the 99 parallel to the 23 parallel. Another way we could do it is in a similar time frame, a Giannis rookie card had sold, right? It was a rare Giannis card. It had the exact same parallels, same exact grade. If I look at both indices, I can take that Giannis versus LeBron and I can say, okay, what is the ratio from LeBron to Giannis? And I can imply a price there. And so you start doing this in, instead of just one or two valuation models. You can do them in thousands at a time, right? And then you price fit it to a curve and it'll spit out a price with a certain confidence interval. And so that's how we figured out that we wanted to bid. We actually were willing to bid a lot more than 1.8. 1.8 is what the final price went for. And today that card is rumored to be worth probably north of, of $7 million. $7 million. My God. <laughs> yeah. A lower variant went for $5.2 million, I think, three or four weeks ago. You also have to be willing to take risks, too. A lot of people aren't willing to take much big risks in new markets. Yeah, definitely. And of course, there's that story that was on the Wall Street Journal a few months back and really put Top Shot on the map, the mainstream map, I should say. You know, and the, Mike Levy was in it. It was him and a few other people. And at least one of them, they said, you know, put in 200 grand in October. And then a few months later, it was worth 20 million plus. Absolutely crazy. And I remember making the account, you know, I learned about it in like the deep caves of Twitter in November. And I thought, yeah, hey, it's like clunky. I don't really see the value of this Jokic third quarter layup that I said earlier. And I didn't think it had any hope. And then, of course, January rolls around and all of this hype. And I'm just thinking, damn, like I had an account for months. But anyway, so one point I do want to cover is the cards that you're dealing with. They're not NFTs. They're fungible. They're not tokenized or auditable, et cetera. I want to learn about you know the verification process that you have on these cards and especially how you're dealing with fraud. I know all always uses things like PSA verification and usually you have to have the, the card, et cetera. But how do you think about quality control and fraud in this industry? I mean, it was one of the big reasons why we started Alt because there's just so much fraud on eBay or Instagram or PayPal. So I would say, let me go through the main use cases of fraud and how we have at least tried to solve it. 
So most people, 60% of transactions do go on eBay. And the worst feeling on eBay is when you buy something, you pay, and then you never get the asset. And so how do you just prevent that? That's just having the asset in your hand already. So everything for alt is about custody. We have custody of all the assets. So that eliminates one piece of fraud. The second part of fraud that happens on eBay is they have a 30-day return policy, right? Now imagine that you're buying an Apple stock right before earnings and earning goes against your with the direction that you thought, and you could return Apple stock. That's basically what's happening with these cards right now. You can't return assets. And so again, very simple way of actually reducing fraud. Don't offer returns. And so for us, it's it returns is actually just an e-commerce mentality, right? For an asset, you actually have to transfer it. It's kind of like your brokerage account. So when you log on to Alt, it feels like a brokerage account. There's no undo button, right? We've eliminated all the risk already. And so the only reason you'd want to return it is buyer's remorse. And buyer's remorse is just part of market dynamics, right? So we eliminated that. The last one is around shill bidding. And so for those out there who aren't familiar with shill bidding, it's basically people who are manipulating prices and then don't pay. Uh, And it's actually quite common in a lot of different asset classes and a lot of big auction houses. And so the way we do that is in order to actually use alt, you actually have to deposit money into the account. And anytime that you are making a bid or an offer on any asset, we're actually taking that money right away. And so when you are actually putting a bid or any, you're putting your money at risk, right? And this is very different than any auction house because at that point, you can bid and then not pay, right? So we've removed the bidding and not paying process uh, to remove fraud. Um, And then the pre-authentication, that just makes sure that any card is not authenticated. So we really try to remove almost all fraud from the platform. Uh, If anything else does come up, you know, I would say it's part of our mission to really reduce that. But we've thought of a lot of really creative ways to start eliminating that. We're really trying to bring a lot of liquidity to the platform. I mean, the other thing that we've done is uh, most of these platforms charge 12.5% to 25% in terms of fees. Alt is 1.5% all in, including payment processing. So... We're really trying to change the way that people are thinking about these assets. Can you just briefly, you know, on the point of fees, I think a lot of people after listening to this episode will be curious to check out Alt. Can you just briefly, you know, trace the customer journey? So let's say one of our listeners is interested in getting involved in Alt. How do they sign up? And then what options are available to them once they start? Yeah, so you sign up uh, and you deposit money. So that's going to feel very much like opening up a Fidelity or a Robinhood or a public account these days. You then go to the public exchange. Uh, it's almost, again, like it's you're, you're in asset discovery mode. Uh, you can search by player, brand, and at that point you can just buy. And as soon as you buy, it'll put it into your alt portfolio, and from then on we will track it every single day, and it will feel very much like you're following the stock. Uh, so that's the buyer journey. For those out there that have sports cards, maybe in an attic or um, under your bed, uh, you can send it to us. Uh, not only can you send it to us for safekeeping and for storage, but also we'll track it for you. And if you want, you can actually list it on the exchange and start trading it as well. So you can start off as a buyer or a seller, depending on what you're most interested in. I'd say there's a third option too, which is not re- like publicly on the website already. But we, for all the accredited investors out there, we do have the largest fund for sports cards. Our first fund closed, I think, six plus months ago. Our IRR is actually at 312% already, and we're launching Fund 2 in the coming months. Uh, And so we are trying to really build a a family of funds on Alt. Uh, Eventually, those funds will be traded on Alt, which will be really crazy, Uh, but we're probably a couple of years from doing that already. 
That's awesome. And I mean, these numbers are insane, 300 plus percent, my God. I think you're going to have a lot of listeners checking out this, this space after this episode. It reminds me, you know, one of the things that I've learned from just investing is that being early in an asset class will always yield outsized or asymmetric returns, right? The people who were early in Top Shot, the people who were early in just crypto, right? And so it's really important to be early in something because if you're wrong, it'll go to zero, but you're really not putting that much risk on the table. Right. But if you're right, right, that asymmetric 10, 100x return makes sense. And there's very few opportunities for markets that get created. So I always, at least now when I see that, I'm always, I'm going to put something to work to just test it out and learn the market. Yeah, I mean, I, it's too bad that I'm a Jets fan. I would love to sell all of my collections of <laughs> Jets sports cards, but it's just been such a dumpster fire over two decades. <laughs> I don't know how much uh, potential there is out there for Wayne Crubet and Leon Washington cards. <laughs> yeah, I will say though, Let's just say you bought a Sam Darnold card. Mm-hmm. Now that he got traded, all his cards are up 3x in the last year. Really? And so even if he's not on the Jets anymore, you could have still made money. <laughs> so I'll just be betting on players that leave the Jets for, for greener pastures. Yeah. That might be my winning <laughs> strategy. <laughs> so one thing I want to return to, you talked to, you know, about this concept of storage, the alt vault, as I saw it was called. What is this, you know, Fort Knox that Lior has and how does it work? Well, it's definitely not just mine. It's, it's the companies. So if you think about it, we're taking deposits, right? People are depositing cash, and cash stays at banks. But what about cards? Where are cards stored, right? At this point, we have, it might even be closer to 10, 10 digits worth of cards in our vault already. Uh, you can't store that all in one location. Uh, and so we have a distributed vaulting system all over the U.S., uh, hopefully uh, internationally soon as well. Uh, you can ship those cards to the vault. Um, there is a ton of security on those vaults. We are also making sure that we're keeping the cards in the, with the right temperature, humidity, uh, light exposure. Uh, these assets do need to be preserved. So, yeah, you can think about it as the modern Fort Knox. I'm always skeptical of trying to go into too much detail because we are trying to keep it very secure and on lockdown. Yeah, that makes sense. So I do want to ask, I mean, it's such a hot space, a new market, as you said, but with these new markets, they often go through kind of a boom and bust. You know, you think about crypto in 2013 and then 2017, and the amount of just excitement around this space, even though I'm very excited as well, in the back of my mind, I do have this slight concern that, you know, it could pop just like any other market. You know, the power of the passion economy has been so powerful the last year, do you feel you know that this is just a, a moment or it's really here to stay and you're excited for the next coming years of this space? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is this market is not new. NFT market is brand new, right? It's been around for less than two years. Right. The sports card market has actually been around for over 25 years, right? It just hasn't had a technology player out there that actually can bring it all together so that everyone can go and trade it. And so because of that, I actually like that market a little bit more. Like it has true market depth. And so if you're looking at the sales over the last three months and you're overlaying it on top of just Top Shot or any of the other, like crypto punks, you're not seeing the same patterns. And so for me, that, I guess, the depth to it makes me a little bit more excited about sports cards because at the end of the day, when you're buying any market or any asset, you're making a bet. And what you want is that you want, if your bet is right, you want to get paid out. And what you don't want is you don't want to have the market to be susceptible so that your bet can be right, but if the market is wrong, you can still lose. And that's what's going on with Top Shot right now, right? Theoretically, if you are buying a LeBron James moment and LeBron James is doing much better, the price should go up, right? But right now, the 
market of NFTs is so volatile that anyone who bought at the top of the market right, and bought at the right player is still down. That does not exist in the sports card market. If you are right in the sports card market, you still go up. And so that means that there's just more depth and there's more players. The dollar amount is also really high. I mean, if you look at the entire market of sports cards, whether it's eBay or Alt, it dominates all of the NFT market in terms of sales, transactions, um, and just top sales in general. So I think if you just start looking at all the actual facts of like the market dynamics, you'll see that these markets, while being compared to each other, are actually very different in terms of maturity. Definitely. And then I do want to ask kind of back to a more managerial question. So while starting all, I mean, also balancing lob, what are maybe two or three of the most challenging things that you've faced in, in getting this business off the ground? Obviously, you had a lot of momentum, you know, friend and family support, the macro trends are headed your way. But what were some of, you know, the unexpected challenges that you faced while starting all top? Yeah, I mean, I will be honest. It was there's a little bit of luck in terms of the market timing, right? I, I I I've been doing it for five years. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was like, oh, sports cards are about to become even more popular. Uh, it was just the right right time. I think the hardest part is finding a group of people early on that share your vision and that can actually bring it to life, right? Especially when I'm running another company, I don't have time to necessarily run every single piece myself. I needed to find people and capable people who can not only lead the team and lead the company but can actually take the vision that I have of creating a asset marketplace or kind of the next financial services for alternative assets and actually bring that to life. Uh, and so just hiring, I think, is probably one of the hardest things to do, to be honest, early on, finding that those right people. And I would say I've, I've gotten very lucky that I've built a really great network over the years. And I went to Michigan. Michigan has done very well for me. At, at both companies, there is a very big Michigan core. And those are the, the leaders at both the companies. So I would say hiring is really hard. And I think the second part is culture. And this one doesn't get talked about enough. But you have to set the right culture early on that's going to motivate people and that people want to be part of, right? And every company has its own DNA. When you create a company, you're always like, what do I want the DNA of this company to be? And specifically for Alt, the question was, do I want the same DNA as Lob? Do I want a different DNA? What's going to be the right DNA for Alt? And that's a hard thing to do, to be quite honest, because you're bringing in so many people all at once. Like Alt has 40 people, right? We've been around for less than six months. You get all these new people all at once. Everyone's going to be adding something to the culture. But what is right and what is wrong, right? Uh, And so I'm always thinking about what is the type of culture that I want to create? What are the things that I want to reward? And so that's definitely something that when you're starting a company is one of the hardest things to do. So, So maybe just kind of thinking through out loud, I think deploying cash is very hard. Like you raise a lot of money and people struggle. How safe should I be? How much money should I burn? And I think this one comes a little bit more with experience. But the market rewards growth, right? You need to be able to grow and create a high, you know, whatever that that key metric is, whether it's users, AUM, transactions on our platform, you need to figure out how to grow that top line metric as fast as possible. And you have to be willing to make mistakes. Uh, And a lot of people, I would say, they raise all this money and then they become scared. They're like, I don't want to lose. I don't want to make a mistake. And it ends up creating this vicious cycle of them losing because they just don't spend, right? And so spending wisely and being okay making those mistakes is probably one of the weirdest feelings early on at a company because you're getting the data. You don't have all the data yet, right? And you're spending money to make mistakes. And that's actually like the part of startup making in the beginning that people don't realize is part of the process. So those are probably like the three hardest things, I would say. 
No, those are great. And I love the can- the candidness, especially on that last point about being afraid to spend money. I don't think that's something that's talked about enough, kind of the psychology after these big cash inflows and raises. So of course, I have to mention, you know, final question here, Alt's own raise. You recently raised about $31 million from an amazing list of investors, including 776, the Collisons of Stripe, which all of our listeners will be familiar with, Kevin Durant, Darren Ravel, who can be a controversial guy at times on Twitter, <laughs> uh, and of course, many more. So can you talk about, you know, I think I understand the impetus for this raise, but syndicating this amazing group of investors and, you know, the vision that you were trying to communicate to them. I think for me, I've seen a lot of a lot of these fintech founders do. I mean, you know, there's, you know, Fred is on our cap table, the founder of Coinbase, Sue Wagner, who founded BlackRock. I'm still trying to learn from the best. I don't have all the answers. I do believe that I understand alternative assets, and I want to be able to partner with people that I can get mentored and learn from as well. And so when I went to kind of pitch everybody, I did have this very unique vision of, you know, I think the big thing I told everybody is I believe in 10 years that when people are buying homes, they're not buying it with cash, right? They're going to be buying it with sports card or sneakers or Birkin bags or NFTs, right? And there needs to be a way to actually facilitate that, right? And I think the world is already moving towards that. And it's funny because we just all saw kind of uh, Elon Musk uh, on SNL and everything about Dogecoin. And one of the really interesting things is that I don't think people are chasing productive assets these days. And I think the stock market is now purely, like I call the stock market, it's merch. It's merch for, you know, Tesla is merch for Elon Musk, right? And so in a world where everything is behaving like merch, right, this is also has that similar capability. And so people want to invest in things that they understand and believe in and relate to. And so if I fast forward 10 years, I really believe like full-fledged that that is the world that we're living in. And I think I can create the financial infrastructure. And I think they're all part of that vision. They're all seeing this new world of fintech, whether it's through cryptocurrency or infrastructure, they also see this in a different way too, and they want to be part of that. And I think a lot of people who have you know, been successful in fintech, they want to continue funding these types of ideas so that we can continue moving the world forward. So I think that's what got a lot of people really excited. It's get, it gets me really excited. And I always try to partner with different types of people from all walks of the earth. So there is a wide range of people from Silicon Valley to the financial world, to the sports world, um, and just a lot of people that I I think I can learn from. Yeah, Lior, that's great. Such an amazing list of folks and definitely backers that like to think big, which is what you're doing here with all and the ideas and future that you're striving toward. Buying a home with anything but money down in a mortgage will be a foreign language to, I think, anyone that's outside of our little fintech niche. But the pieces are coming together in the coming years. And I think Alt is going to play a big part in that revolution. I actually know a few folks that have borrowed against their crypto balances through BlockFi, Celsius, Salt, etc., and gotten cash loans to buy homes. And when you layer in DeFi, people can get pretty crazy interest rate arbitrage on that. And as the alt universe continually expands, as you said, you know, people are going to have six-figure or more asset classes with portfolios within their portfolios that are not stocks, bonds, or even crypto. So, Lior, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid-fire question round. We've got a set of questions for you here. Are you ready? I'm excited. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) All right, let's hit it. First one, first job you ever had? 
uh, camp counselor. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> if you're trying to go really early on. Uh, but then I, I started working for banks, uh, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. How about first fintech app you ever downloaded? Interactive broker, 100%. Great one. What a throwback. All right, next one. Who are your favorite sports teams? Oh, man. So I'm from Chicago. I've always loved the Bulls, but I haven't... It's been so long that I think now being in San Francisco, I'm a big Warriors fan. Really? Okay. I still love the Bears, though, the Chicago Bears. Yeah, of course. We'll see uh, how their draft works out with Justin Fields. I know the team is pretty hyped. <laughs> we'll see how the Jets do with Zach Wilson as well. Yeah. All right, next one. What is the worst trade that you ever had? In 20, well, 2010, I bet on Apple earnings and lost around a lot of money that day. <laughs> that was that's when I learned that you can take risk and you need to feel the pain of losing money and then you become numb and then going forward you're able to take a lot more risk. I love that. Now to boost up your mood a little bit, what about one of the best trades you ever had? Uh, I bought a sports card. It's probably the the biggest one that I own for $13,000 a year ago that is now a multi-million dollar card. That's amazing. I'll never sell it. Never. Could you? Are you able to say what the team or sport is? It's a Kobe Bryant card. It's the 2008 Topps Chrome Superfractor, one of one. LeBron James is guarding Kobe Bryant. It is graded a PSA 10. Um, it is the only card featuring both of them in that aspect. That's amazing. It's an awesome card. It's an iconic card. How were you able to get that for only thirteen thousand? The market when I bought it, that thirteen thousand dollars was a lot for a sports card back then. Wow, amazing. I, I mean, I, I would love to own that card or at least see it. That sounds awesome. Very jealous. So, all right, next question. What is kind of your rough general portfolio allocation, you know, like to stocks, bonds, cards, crypto, et cetera? Ooh, okay. Almost nothing in cash. Everything, in, my, my base cash is in Ethereum. 65% in sports cards. 20% in other types of alternative assets. And I think the newest one is 10% in REITs. Uh, so in a world where everyone is not thinking about productive assets, there's some really great REITs out there that are yielding around 8% that are just great base to have as part of the portfolio. And then very little in stocks, actually. Interesting. Okay. Next one. What is the hardest decision you've had to make as a founder? It's probably letting people go, to be honest. Uh, every one of those decisions always is a really hard one. All right, last two. First one, what is your unrealistic dream job? If you weren't doing this anymore, what would you be doing? Uh, a painter or a sculptor. <laughs> a painter or a sculptor? <laughs> Out there. You were a big artist back in the day? I still do a little bit. I really enjoy it. It's just very different. Like I love interior design. I like painting. I started getting into like the, the digital art and probably will mint my first NFT soon. Oh, all right. That's awesome. Let me know. We can uh, blast it on the Wharton FinTech channels. I'm excited to check it out. And then last question, let's say, you know, COVID is fully over, although we're getting pretty close to that, hopefully in terms of mass vaccination. What is the first big blowout vacation that you go on? Uh, either Israel or Amsterdam. Uh, Israel, just I haven't seen my, my entire family lives there and I just miss it deeply. Uh, and then Amsterdam, such a like a worldly culture. I always feel so safe, and I just love walking around and eating all the food. Love it. I love Amsterdam as well. Israel is high, high on the list. They already have no masks. Yeah, I'm trying to go there ASAP. 
Well, Lior, it was fantastic having you on today's episode of the War and Fintech podcast. Great to get the alternative asset space, some airtime on the pod. It was awesome hearing your story and your predictions for the alternative asset space. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.